Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. It's official. The Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade in one of its biggest decisions in decades. We bring you more from the scene to hear what they're saying. Extreme sadness for America. Joy. Just absolute joy. And God has truly blessed our country today. For weeks, a pro-abortion extremist group has been planning to take action against today's Supreme Court ruling, and some people are not taking the threat lying down. Twitter recently banned a medical doctor for posting an official peer-reviewed study on the COVID-19 vaccine. We'll tell you more about that study, and we'll also hear from the doctor himself. A movie theater in Oklahoma added a warning sign to Disney's new film, Lightyear. What does it say and how is the local community reacting? The resilient Tampa Bay Lightning are down again, but not out in the Stanley Cup Finals against Colorado. We detail some of their greatest escapes yet. In a bombshell decision, the Supreme Court today overturned Roe v. Wade, effectively giving the right to determine abortion back to the states. How are Americans reacting from protesters to the president? NTD's Iris Tao has more. It's official. The Supreme Court on Friday overturned Roe v. Wade, ruling there's no longer a federal constitutional right to an abortion. Extreme sadness for America. Joy. Just absolute joy. And God has truly blessed our country today. Calling abortion a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views, the high court wrote in its opinion, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, and now authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. And Americans showing both cheers and jeers outside of the court, with some expressing fears. I know y'all don't believe it, but birth control is definitely next. All this is going to do is cause more negativity and more deaths within our lives between women and between children because they're not going to have a safe way to have abortion. And others saying they see hope. There are many couples like us that we have not been able to conceive and that we would love to have a child. So the solution is not to kill. There is many solutions. Adopt is one of those. And if they don't want them, we, we will take them. And as the protests are going on right behind me, some states have already started to act. Right after the Friday ruling, abortion bans went into immediate effect in states of Louisiana, Missouri, Kentucky and South Dakota. At least 13 states have triggered laws to pose abortion restrictions immediately or soon following the ruling. Meanwhile, the president decrying the court's decision. The court literally taking America back 150 years. That's as lawmakers give a flurry of strong reactions, with Democrats calling it an insult to women. It's a slap in the face to women about using their own judgment to make their own decisions about their reproductive freedom while Republicans hailing it as a victory for life. This great nation can now live up to its core principle that all are created equal, not born equal, created equal. And Biden added that he would defend the right for women to travel to another state for an abortion, now that some states are moving to ban or restrict it. And joining us today to offer analysis of the court's decision from a legal perspective is James Burling, Vice President of Legal Affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation, a nonprofit that's described on its website as dedicated to defending Americans against government overreach. James, welcome to our show. Thank you. Uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that there is no constitutional right to abortion. Could you explain a little about their reasoning? So the court said that if we are going to have a right to abortion, it has to be protected under traditional understandings of constitutional law when the amendments that are affecting our constitutional rights were enacted. And the court went through a very long history from the 14th century on up to current times and found there is no traditional 
common law right to an abortion and therefore when a court reviews a law restricting a right to abortion it's going to have rational basis review meaning that if the government can come up a state can come up with a good reason for restricting the review it is going the court is going to say okay we will accept that reason and that is because the ability to have an abortion is not considered to be a fundamental right with long tradition in the history of American and the common law. Is there anything that stood out to you particularly in the majority opinion? Well, the majority opinion did something that was rather uh, unprecedented in a way, in the way that it overturned this 50-year precedent by relying so heavily on traditional law and uh, really not focusing an awful lot, and this is what the dissent took it to task for, with some of the policy implications of a ban on abortions or restrictions on abortions. So I think the court was quite clear saying, look, we are going to read the Constitution as it was written, as it was understood at the time it and the relevant amendments were adopted, and we're not going to inject our own policy preferences. It was very, very strong in saying that. And I haven't seen opinions from the court uh, being that forthright about what they're doing in quite some time. And could you explain a little more about the dissenting opinion? The dissenting opinion written by Justice Breyer was uh, very strong and uh, just lamented the uh, change of the law that this ha will cause. And the court was saying essentially that the majority, especially the five members of the majority who were part of the main opinion, were doing this with that principle. They were violating a well-established right. They are ignoring the fact that when the Constitution was adopted and the amendments were adopted, women didn't have any rights. So how the dissent asked, should we be paying attention too much to the way things were back in the 1800s when the Constitution was amended to uh, incorporate the Bill of Rights. Uh, the court continued saying that this is very unprincipled of the majority opinion, and it said that they essentially is turning a court uh, from one of law into one being made by individuals. So it was a, it was a very strong and stark opinion. Uh, you can show there is a profound disagreement philosophically with the majority on the Ken O'Brien and the other dissenters, Kagan and Sotomayor. And I, I think it, uh, it's, you know, it's perhaps Justice Breyer's swan song of trying to uh, tell the world that he thinks that the new majority of the Supreme Court is uh, out of bounds. Do you think state lawmakers will now start introducing more pro-life and pro-abortion legislation now that this has happened? Oh, I think the states are going to become very, very active. As President Biden said in his address to the people a few moments ago, or about an hour ago, I guess now, uh, he said that uh, we, are, we, the Democrats, are going to have to redouble our efforts in the state houses and the legislature and Congress. And the Democratic Party is going to make this a very big campaign issue. On the other hand, conservatives are going to do the same thing, and they're going to make it a rallying cry for their side that if we want to preserve the right to life, then we're going to have to, they're going to say, to redouble our efforts there. So I think the state has, they're going to be very active. A lot of them have laws restricting abortion. A number of them were ready to go. They would be triggered by this decision today, so they're going into impact immediately. But there's going to be all sorts of debate at the state level, which is exactly what the majority said should happen. The states should start debating this themselves rather than relying on a, a majority of the Supreme Court to make this decision for them. James Burling from the Pacific Legal Foundation, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And in anticipation of the Supreme Court's decision today, media reports say the Department of Homeland Security warned Catholic churches and pro-life centers that an extremist group is planning a night of rage. NTD's Arlene Richards finds out how a Buffalo pro-life center, attacked two weeks ago, is getting prepared. 
Weeks before the expected Supreme Court abortion decision today, extremist group Jane's Revenge posted a call to action for a night of rage. In a blog post, the group said, on the night the final ruling is issued, a specific date we cannot yet predict, but we know is arriving imminently, we are asking for courageous hearts to come out after dark. The group encourages participants to carry their anger out into the world and express it physically. And several news outlets have reported that the Department of Homeland Security allegedly warned Catholic churches and pro-life centers to get prepared for the rage. Reverend James Harden, CEO of a Buffalo pro-life center that was attacked on June 7th, has a plan. We are increasing our security, as you can imagine, tonight because of that their, their website's encouraging people to go out for engaging a night of rage um, starting at 8 p.m. He said the center suffered more than $250,000 in damage and Jane's Revenge doesn't deny doing it. The Jane's, Re Jane's Revenge terrorist, pro-abortion pro terrorist group took responsibility for it. They wrote their signature scrawl on the side of the building uh, saying Jane was here and then they put out another communique saying that uh, they, they, they did it. The group said it would begin actions nationwide starting at 8 p.m., but that plans could change. In a speech condemning the Supreme Court's ruling, President Joe Biden called for peaceful protest. I call on everyone, no matter how deeply they care about this decision, to keep all protests peaceful. Peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. No intimidation. Violence is never acceptable. Threats and intimidation are not speech. Harden wants the government to take action. That's the government's job to protect all citizens without partiality, those that agree with them and those that don't, those that are weak, especially those that are weak and vulnerable, and those are, 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 are the children in the womb and their mothers who think that abortion is their only option. We reached out to the Department of Homeland Security but didn't hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Highly concerning. And now we'll hear from a pro-life advocate and correspondent with the Right to Life nonprofit live action, Christina Bennett. Here's her take on the decision. Christina, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, this decision by the Supreme Court today is huge. And you and your organization have been hoping for it for quite some time. What's your reaction? It's honestly a dream come true. I have been praying and working towards this for 17 plus years. The people at Live Action as well have been working towards this for years. And it is wonderful to see the Supreme Court declare what we have always said is the truth, that there is not a constitutional right to have an abortion. That was something that was made up by pro-abortion advocates. They created a false right to privacy to create a false constitutional right. And that was struck down today. And so I am grateful to see this historic moment. Now, President Biden has been urging uh, protesters and the public to protest peacefully. Uh, that's in the wake of much violence that's been leading up to this decision. Do you fear or expect in any way that this violence will increase towards pro-life pregnancy centers and organizations? Tragically, I think that it might because there are groups like Jane's Revenge who have promised to have a night of terror, a night of violence. But to me, it just displays what we've said always about abortion, that abortion is violent. And now the people who support abortion are taking to the streets and they're acting in violent ways. And it's very sad to see it. So I would encourage all pregnancy resource staff leaders, all people who work for pro-life organizations to be careful, to be prayerful and to stay safe. And what do you think is next for the pro-life movement? The pro-life movement has a lot of work to do. And of course, today we are rejoicing because of this historic Supreme Court victory. At the same time, we recognize that there are states like mine, I am in the state of Connecticut, where legally nothing has changed today for people in my state. Tragically, this state still allows abortion. And it's this case for other states like California and New York, and other states across the country. So we have a lot of work to do. In the states where abortion is still legal, we have to continue to reach women. We have to continue to help them, to give them support so they don't feel alone, and they know that we are with them by their side. It's really important for people to talk to their legislators on a state level, get to know your state representatives and state senators, and fight on that particular level. So we have a lot to do in supporting women and families. 
Christina Bennett, live action correspondent, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. God bless. I'm sure many people are wondering what they can do at this time. Well, moving now to a movie theater in Oklahoma, which has posted a warning sign for Disney and Pixar's new film, Lightyear. It has to do with the film's decision to include a same-sex kiss scene. According to NBC News, 89er Theater in Kingfisher, Oklahoma, added a warning sign on its window for the movie Lightyear over the weekend. Here's an image of the alleged warning at the theater obtained by local outlet KFOR. The sign reads, in part, Attention parents, the management of this theater discovered after booking Lightyear that there is a same-sex kissing scene within the first 30 minutes of the Pixar movie. We will do all we can to fast-forward through that scene, but it might not be exact. The sign was reportedly gone by Monday afternoon. Some in the local community say they felt offended by the sign. One woman told NBC that she will never see a movie at this theater under the current ownership. Lightyear performed below expectations on its opening weekend. It grossed $51 million in the U.S., while analysts had predicted $70 to $85 million. And more in gender issues, this time in the U.S. Navy, which has come under fire for a video instructing the use of gender pronouns. Lawmakers say it has nothing to do with the Navy's combat readiness. A video from the Navy is facing ridicule on social media. It teaches sailors how to use proper pronouns to reflect one's preferred gender identity. Hosting the show are Johnny Rosin and Conchi Vasquez, two engineers at the Naval Undersea Warfare Center in Rhode Island. Hi, my name is Johnny and I use he, him pronouns. Hi, and I'm Conchi and I use she, her pronouns. And we're here to talk about pronouns. Rosin says using the correct pronouns is, quote, a simple way to affirm someone's identity and a signal of acceptance and respect. Vasquez then tosses him a specific question. If it's a signal of acceptance and respect, how do we go about creating a safe space for everybody? That's a good question. A really good way to do that is to use inclusive language. Instead of saying something like, hey guys, you can say, hey everyone, or hey team. The video continues. Another way that we could show that we're allies and that we accept everybody is to maybe include our pronouns in our emails or, like we just did, introduce ourselves using our pronoun. The show also suggests what to do upon using a pronoun that a person doesn't prefer. You correct yourself and move on or you accept the correction and move on. The most important thing I can tell you is do not put the burden of making you feel good about your mistake on the person that you just misgendered. The nearly four-minute video was shot one year ago but was only released this May. It sparked immediate criticism and mockery after the Washington Free Beacon posted it on Twitter. Many question what the concept of safe space has to do with protecting the nation. Texas Representative Dan Crenshaw, a former Navy SEAL, said the Navy should focus on war instead of pronouns, calling the video stupidity. Representative Jim Banks, a member of the Navy Reserve, pointed to the woke nature of the video. Another congressman, Billy Long, echoed a similar message, saying, while China is building the world's largest navy, including the launch of a supercarrier last week, Democrats focus on gender studies and critical race theory training for our military, adding China must be petrified. The Department of Defense and the Defense Media Activity haven't responded to requests for comment. Turning now to the COVID vaccine. Could there be reproductive issues with the COVID vaccine? A recent medical study showed that men who received Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine had lower levels of semen. A doctor who tweeted about the study was banned by Twitter. And TD's Jason Perry spoke with the doctor about the ban. It was literally reproducing the, the, the title of the article as published by the authors. Uh, and, and I just, I was, I was shocked that this would be problematic. Andrew Bostom is a physician epidemiologist. Twitter recently banned him after he tweeted about a medical study that showed men who received Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine had lower levels of semen and a loss in motile sperm count. At the end of the tweet, all I said was, well, but um, what happens, you know, if we're going to be boostering people, in some cases, every six months or so, what happens with the next round of boosters? You know, is, is, do you see a further decline? Do you see no change? Uh, do you see... Uh, sort of an interaction where the decline is even worse 
than it was the first time around? And how long does that persist? I mean, these are all open questions. And, and this is the kind of thing that, you know, and, and all that does really though, Jason, is it says, you know, you need to study this issue further and, and look at the effect of boosters on a similar group of, of, of men. The message from Twitter said he violated its policy against spreading misleading and potentially harmful information related to COVID-19. Boston does not know for how long he will be banned or exactly why he was banned as others have posted about the study with no apparent repercussions. Boston later alluded to Elon Musk. I, I hope that, that Mr. Musk, you know, if he is gonna take over Twitter, or well, I guess that's still up in the air, uh, is, is, um, is receptive to, to, to how important it is to keep open uh, lines of communication. Twitter plans to hold a special shareholder meeting to vote on the sale to Elon Musk, one of the final steps needed to close the deal. The date for that vote is undisclosed, but it's expected to happen in the coming months. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, a police-involved shooting in Alabama left one man dead and a police officer behind bars. The officer's wife is trying to appeal, saying her husband did nothing wrong. Bill Gates' farmland buying spree hits a ditch. North Dakota's attorney general wants to know how a group linked to Gates is going to use the land. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. A woman in Alabama is trying to free her husband, who was a police officer, from jail. She says he was wrongfully convicted for doing his job while engaging with an armed man. The host of NTD's The Nation Speaks, Cindy Drucker, had a chance to speak with the woman, who is an active law enforcement officer in Alabama. Here are the details. Keelan Darby is a police sergeant in the state of Alabama. She's trying to appeal the ruling that convicted her husband. Huntsville police officer Ben Darby of murder in a police-involved shooting. Back in April 2018, the officer responded to a 911 call from a suicidal man with a gun named Jeff Parker, and he was the third officer to arrive on the scene. Body cam footage shows that Darby shot and killed Parker after the three officers told Parker to put his gun down multiple times. You cannot wait uh, for movement if you feel like your life is in a direct uh, eminent threat, you have the right to defend yourself. And that's backed by case law and Alabama criminal statute. The wife says her husband did nothing wrong and protected the lives of himself and the two other officers. The Huntsville Police Department agreed. Their review board concluded that Darby's actions were within their policy, but the district attorney later charged Darby with murder. A jury found him guilty in 2021, and the officer was sentenced to 25 years in prison, where he still is now. That's a very unfortunate thing because Ben hasn't done anything wrong. He has the backing of the National Fraternal Order of Police, the Chief of Police, the Huntsville Police Department, the Huntsville Mayor. If a police officer is doing something wrong, especially in today's climate, they're cut loose and everyone lets go of them immediately. If he really did commit murder, why would they be backing him? The officer's wife says the trial was closed to the public due to pandemic restrictions, and the jury was unable to hear from a witness who was Parker's neighbor. Parker reportedly told the neighbor about his plan to lure police officers into his house and kill them. The neighbor was allowed to speak to the court record in case this was ever to go to an appeal, which is where we're currently at. So it could be recorded in history of what the conversation was between Parker and the neighbor, but the 12 people that were gonna decide if Ben Darby was guilty of murder or not, weren't allowed to hear it. Keelan is asking for help to appeal this ruling and says the situation has left their family in significant financial crisis. She says she wasn't allowed to speak about the case until now because the judge issued a gag order. 
You can watch the full interview with Keelan Darby at 11 a.m. Eastern Time this Saturday here on NTD News. And we'll keep you updated on that case. And Bill, Bill Gates' farmland buying spree has hit a hurdle. Residents in North Dakota don't seem happy about a recent farmland purchase there, and even the state attorney general is getting involved. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. Billionaire Bill Gates is having some trouble with a recent farmland purchase. The Red River Trust, an entity that has ties to Gates, bought six parcels of potato farmland in North Dakota, right on the northeastern corner. The state's attorney general directly told Red River Trust that it's illegal for all corporations and limited liability companies to own farmland in North Dakota. There's nothing illegal about buying it, but farming on it would be. You get a, uh, an absentee landowner. They're no longer really a part of the community. And, and it seems that Bill Gates's goals are contrary to many of the, the established practices and traditions of those communities. Gary Hubble is an accredited land consultant at United Country Ranch Properties. Hubble says there's a lot of resentment and resistance to Gates' acquisitions. Agriculture Commissioner Doug Goring says people all across the state tell him they're upset about this. Some of them he described as livid. Bill Gates is the fourth richest person in the world and the largest private owner of farmland in the United States. He makes the purchases through external entities, such as the Red River Trust, and he grows things like carrots, soybeans, and potatoes. When the stock market goes down, a lot of people go to ground. They buy land. We all need to eat, and farmland allows us to have our, our ability to, to feed ourselves. But um, it can be a, a, a long-lasting investment. The value of farmland has been increasing over the years, and it's an asset with limited supply. A year ago, someone asked Gates, why are you buying so much farmland on Reddit? And he responded, my investment group chose to do this. It is not connected to climate. The agriculture sector is important. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And on inflation, Americans are facing a tough choice as Independence Day weekend approaches. Stay home and save money as gas prices soar or fill up their tanks anyway and enjoy a vacation. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. Travel experts say nearly 50 million people will hit the road this 4th of July weekend, an increase of nearly 4% from last year, after two years of pandemic concerns and restrictions. The overall travel volume is going to be fairly close to pre-pandemic levels, down just about 8% from what we saw in 2019 during that 4th of July weekend, you know, before the pandemic began. But it is going to be about 3.7% higher than what we saw last year for 4th of July. The average gallon of gas is now around $5 nationally, but it's even higher in some states. Despite the price, AAA is expecting a new record for car travel. Most Americans will be traveling by automobile, even with the higher pump prices, because it just makes sense. It's more convenient. People can leave when they want to leave, return when they want to leave. Many Americans may also feel that traveling by car is more reliable than air travel at the moment. Also, you know, given the flight delays and cancellations that we've heard about in recent weeks and what we saw over Memorial Day, many people will look to their old-fashioned road trips as their primary mode of transportation. Prices have been soaring in the U.S. for weeks. Experts say it's down to the old issue of supply and demand. People have this pent-up demand and they want to travel. We see it at the airports right now and it's going to move into domestic travel in terms of people driving to see family. We don't see that changing anytime soon. But consumers are still feeling the squeeze. You used to be able to bond with your car at the gas pump, but no, because prices are so high, you put in $30, it's done in a second. While prices surge at the pump, Americans can also expect high prices at the grocery store as they get ready for 4th of July festivities. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And we hope those rates improve. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled on New York's gun, guns right case, but some Californians are already preparing to challenge the decision. And the resilient Tampa Bay Lightning have won the last two Stanley Cups, but Colorado has them on the ropes. NTD's Dave Martin looks at some of the close calls they've escaped in a preview of tonight's game. That and more coming up.
to gun laws. Groups are taking action following the Supreme Court's recent ruling that people have the right to carry in public for self-defense. But some Californians are ready to challenge that ruling. NTD's Daniel Hall has a look at how people are reacting. The Supreme Court struck down New York State's limits on carrying concealed handguns outside the home. The ruling upheld the Second Amendment and recognized, for the first time, a constitutional right to carry firearms in public for self-defense. But one attorney for a pro-Second Amendment group anticipates gun control advocates may challenge the Supreme Court decision. We are looking at other uh, litigation that could be brought because uh, the way this case came down, it wasn't just for um, concealed carry, it also put a new test on all Second Amendment cases now, uh, where those courts now have to go back and decide whether or not a new law is act, was actually a historical precedent at the time that the Second Amendment or the 14th Amendment were passed. Meanwhile, Democratic leaders in California had prepared legislation in anticipation of the decision. Governor Gavin Newsom says lawmakers will now fast-track the most restrictive rules allowed under the Supreme Court's ruling. We've been working closely with our attorney general, with legal staff, as well as legislative leadership to ready and craft legislation that will be heard next week to protect our public carry law and defend the rights of Californians. However, Chauvin says the right to bear arms is protected under the Constitution. She adds that people who obtain permits to carry concealed firearms go through background checks. There are millions of gun owners in the United States right now, and none of them are going out and committing crimes. None of them are um, doing anything illegal. They are lawful citizens that have the right to bear arms. And they also have the right now the Supreme Court has said it, to bear arms outside the home and protect themselves. But California Attorney General Rob Bonta says restrictive gun laws were working. He cited per capita data on gun death rates, which put the Golden State at 44th lowest among the 50 states. But according to both FBI and CDC statistics, California had the highest total death count of any state in 2020. California currently has the highest number of gun laws, with 107. Massachusetts follows closely behind with 103, and Connecticut ranks third with its 92 gun laws. Idaho was the least with one gun law, followed by Mississippi and Missouri with two. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And more on guns. Local and federal agencies gathered in a small California city for an active shooter training seminar. NTD's David Lamb went to see how officers from different agencies learned to work together when addressing various life-threatening situations. About 40 different agencies participated in this annual active shooter training to prepare officers on the front line. This is the program's 10th year. It's to stop the threat. Uh, that's that's first and foremost is to just stop whatever the the the, the threat is to the, the the people that are in the area. It's over a week-long training in Scotts Valley, just south of California's Silicon Valley. The training is for first responders to get together and work in unison with different departments when responding to incidents. Follow the front side in. Follow your front side in. Open door left. Open door left. Fine. The training includes local and federal agencies. Here, first responders clear out the rooms. Clear on the right, clear on the right, moving up. Now this active shooter training is currently held locally at Scotts Valley High School. Some officials want to improve and strengthen the program by getting statewide support. School shootings should be very, very rare. Unfortunately, in our world these days, they're not so much. So it is time that we build a common approach to a response. And when you look at the protocols that they're putting together... When responding to incidents, officers from different jurisdictions may come together, and having proper communication is key. And we feel like this is so important with hundreds of, of officers and uh, other service providers, first responders benefiting from it, that if we could get consistent funding, it would allow us to continue this program consistently. The officials hope the program can continue to receive funding each year so different departments across the state can ensure standard protocols and close to real experience to keep the community safe.
David Lamb, NCD News, California. And now to another major issue of concern, America's homelessness crisis. Many programs offer free meals and shelter, but these alone don't address the root of the problem. One Chicago nonprofit has been at the forefront of the issue since 1994, and it's achieved remarkable success in transforming the lives of homeless people. Here's their story. Nellie Vasquez Rowland and her husband Brian Rowland were successful investment bankers in Chicago. They gave up their lucrative careers to establish the nonprofit organization A Safe Haven in 1994. It offers one of the nation's most comprehensive programs to prevent, address, and end homelessness. We wanted to help people. We started out with the idea of wanting to help people that were suffering from substance abuse issues. Uh, the reason is because our own family had gone through that. The Rollins got an idea from a 1994 study on the cost and benefits of substance abuse treatments called CalData. And what that Cal data study said was that for every dollar that the state invested in helping people get access to treatment for substance abuse, the state saved $7 because the, ch the people were no longer getting arrested. They were no longer committing crimes. The children were not being taken away from their parents and weren't ending up in the, in the foster care system. As an investor, I thought, oh my God, that is a 700% return. So the Rollins developed a comprehensive model that treats a homeless person holistically. A safe haven first assesses the needs of the homeless person, then develops an individualized plan to address physical and mental issues. Education and job training are part of the program to help homeless people re-enter the workforce and eventually get their lives back on track. The program is structured and requires accountability from the participants. What AC Haven does is it eliminates all the barriers and it's very hard to fail here, you know, because you've got too many people that are paying attention to all of your needs and making sure that you succeed. And more importantly, help you believe that you can. The difference here is um, I work on all parts of my issues, which is the mental health, the substance abuse, the living life, um, learning how to live life again. This support here is phenomenal. One of the best days of my life is when I walk through the doors. They are addressing all my needs and then some. The Rollins also created several social enterprises, such as landscaping and staffing agency services within a safe haven. They employ program participants rejected by other employers due to their criminal backgrounds. The revenue from the social enterprises accounts for one-third of the organization's operating income. We ended up getting a study done by Northwestern in 1999, and the study said that, you know, our model was the most successful model they had seen. And it was a success rate of over 280% over the national average. And uh, it got published in the American Journal of Public Health. In the past 27 years, a safe haven has served 135,000 people, and 70% have graduated from the program. Roland wishes to have more funding and capacity to serve thousands more who are turned away every day. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. An inspiring story. And now let's turn to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Tonight in the NHL, Colorado can claim the Stanley Cup with a win over two-time defending champion Tampa Bay. The Avalanche won Game 4 Wednesday night in overtime with a goal by Nazem Kadri. And though replays seem to show Colorado had too many men on the ice, the play is not reviewable. The result has the Lightning in a 3-1 hole. 36 times in the history of the Stanley Cup has a team trailed 3-1 and 35 times they've lost the series. Only the 1942 Toronto Maple Leafs, who trailed 3-0, came back to win. But Tampa Bay has survived several close calls this postseason already. In the first round, the Lightning trailed three games to two against Toronto and 3-2 in the third period of game six before rallying to win the game and eventually the series. Then after sweeping the team with the league's best record, Florida, they then faced the Rangers in the conference finals. Tampa Bay quickly fell behind New York two games to none and 2-0 in the third period of game three before rallying to win the game and eventually the series. Should they survive tonight's game five, Game 6 will be Sunday night in Tampa Bay. In golf news, the European Tour has banned golfers who played in the rival Live Golf League 
from three upcoming events and find them 100,000 pounds, which equals about $123,000. The events players would be suspended from are the Scottish Open, the Barbasol Championship, and the Barracuda Championship. The three events are actually co-sponsored by the European Tour and the PGA Tour. The fine, although hefty, is just barely more than the $120,000 minimum prize the inaugural Live Golf event handed out at the Centurion Course in London earlier this month. The event featured the richest purse in golf history at $25 million, with winner Charles Schwartzel earning the $4 million top prize. The Scottish Open starts July 7th with an $8 million purse, while the other two events feature purses of $3.7 million. The next Live Golf event starts on June 30th in Portland, Oregon at the Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club. In tennis, 23-time major champion Serena Williams drew 113th ranked Harmony Tan as her opponent in her Wimbledon opener. Williams, who's won this tournament seven times, has dropped outside the top 1,200 in the rankings because of her inactivity following an injury at last year's Wimbledon and as a wild card, could have faced a much stiffer test in the opening round. Should she get past Tan, who has never played at Wimbledon, she could be in line to face 32nd ranked Sarah Sorbus Tormo, who is yet to advance past the second round. The first round of play begins on June 27th. And finally, in baseball, the Yankees and star outfielder Aaron Judge agreed to a one-year $19 million contract for the season. The two sides were to have their case decided by an arbitrator today, but came to an agreement instead. Judge had previously been asking for $21 million, with the Yankees offering $17. The money appears to be money well spent for the Yankees, though, as Judge leads the league with 27 home runs. The 30-year-old outfielder finished fourth in the MVP voting last year while earning his third All-Star nod and second Silver Slugger award. Judge and the Yankees sit atop the AL East with a 52-18 record. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, travel chaos across Europe continues with Ryanair crew on strike in Spain and Portugal and British Airways staff at Heathrow voting for a walkout. And countries in Europe's Balkan region are losing hope of ever being approved to join the European Union. That's after seeing Ukraine get fast-tracked for candidacy. That and more after the short break. Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. Ryanair cabin crew unions in Spain and Portugal started a three-day strike today. And British Airways staff at Heathrow voted for a walkout. The industrial action is expected to add to the travel chaos already affecting airports across Europe. NTD's Eddie Aitken tells us more. In Spain, some cabin crew at Ryanair went on strike in a dispute over pay and working conditions. Workers say the Irish airline does not respect local labour law covering issues such as the minimum wage. The Spanish strikers were joining their colleagues in Portugal. Workers there urged Ryanair's bosses to improve working conditions. It's not just discrimination at work. Working conditions are terrible. We usually never deny people a glass of water, but at Ryanair, a crew member is not even allowed to take a bottle of water on a flight. At Brussels Airlines, hundreds of flights have been cancelled due to a walkout by staff. Workers say that staff shortages mean the workload has become unbearable. If we are not in top shape, we could miss out on essential things in case of fire or illness we have to be able to react quickly. If we are tired, we can't do that. On Thursday, British Airways staff at Heathrow Airport voted to strike, 
The vote came after BA failed to roll back a 10% pay cut imposed during the pandemic. The GMB union is warning Heathrow would likely face a summer of strikes. Surging inflation across Europe has led to millions of workers struggling with a higher cost of living, in turn prompting trade unions to demand higher wage increases, often backed by strike calls. Airlines and airport operators across Europe also struggle with staff shortages to handle the flow of passengers as demand for travel bounced back with most COVID-19 restrictions lifted. And it takes quite a long time for airlines and airports to recruit, uh, train and get security clearance for their staff. So it'll be a few months before um, the, the, the main crunch points are over. Even before the strikes, passengers have been encountering chaotic scenes at airports, including lengthy delays, cancelled flights and headaches over lost luggage. Hedy Aitken, NTD News. And staying in Europe, the EU has accepted Ukraine as a candidate to join the bloc. And it has done so on the fast track in solidarity over the war. But what about the Balkan states that have been candidates for a long time? Well, now they're feeling neglected. Additionally, progress is lagging for their citizens to travel to the Union without visas. And the Balkans don't expect much from this week's summit with the EU. Kosovo has been waiting for visa-free travel to the European Union for more than a decade. So this restaurant owner put up a fake Eiffel Tower for his diners. It's a sort of consolation prize for those who can't go to Paris, Blerim Bisnimi says. The joke reflects Balkan disillusionment about the prospect of ever joining the EU, which is such that two of the six states in the region, Albania and Serbia, nearly stayed away from Thursday's Balkan-EU summit in Brussels, but changed their minds at the last minute. All but Bosnia and Kosovo are candidates, but there's been a lack of progress on milestones like visa-free travel. Now Ukraine's fast-track candidacy, a gesture of solidarity after Russia's invasion, has increased the feeling the Balkans have been sidelined. In Kosovo's capital, Pristina, Artondem Hasai heads anti-corruption body Kohu, which means wake up. The European Union has no clear enlargement policies towards the Western Balkans. And if countries who aspire to join the EU face delays, they will reorientate their policies. And then we will have an increase in Russian and Chinese influence in the Western Balkans and this will create problems within the EU itself. It will lead to a rise in nationalism that could result in armed conflicts. The EU should take such developments into consideration. In Serbia, the largest Balkan country, enthusiasm for EU membership has plummeted and only 35% are in favour, according to an Ipsos poll in April. Talks have stalled over democratic reforms, corruption and disputes within the Balkans. EU member Bulgaria has blocked the start of accession talks with North Macedonia over a dispute concerning history and language. There's been no progress on overcoming that veto or helping Serbia and Montenegro in their negotiations, which require politically unpopular reforms. By contrast, the EU's earlier eastward enlargement transformed former communist countries such as Poland into thriving market democracies. Now, some EU governments like France, the Netherlands and Denmark fear migration from the Balkans will prompt a backlash and have placed the emphasis on their reform. A draft of the summit statement showed EU leaders will restate their commitment to Balkan membership. EU diplomats do not expect a breakthrough. And turning next to something a little lighter, coming up a spur-of-the-moment photo shoot of a couple married for 70 years with the wife wearing the original dress that's taken the internet by storm. We're on this after the break. The couple, married for 70 years, celebrated the incredible milestone with a romantic photo shoot that went viral. Let's take a look. This is the couple 70 years ago, and this is now. The loved up pair from South Dakota, Melvin and Nancy Lubbers, engaged in a spontaneous photo shoot to celebrate their 70 years of marriage. So they always tell me the story that they were both roller skating at a roller skating rink in South Dakota, and 
grandma fell for grandpa i guess he swept swept her right off his her feet <laughs> at the time the newlyweds had no chance for a honeymoon with melvin being called into service just three weeks after marrying nancy he served in korea for eight months seven decades later the pair have five children 12 grandchildren and 21 great-grandchildren granddaughter anna had the spur of the moment idea to photograph her grandmother in her 1952 wedding gown fit her like a glove it was crazy i mean i don't think i'll be able to fit my wedding dress in 70 years <laughs> but she fit in it and then my my mom got to thinking she was like you know what if we're going to take pictures with your dress on maybe we should get grandpa's army uniform on as well she was just thrilled um grandpa on the other hand would rather stay out of the spotlight but seeing his wife in her wedding dress again melvin says it brought back some good memories the couple had a church wedding and dinner Melvin recalls having ice cream and cake for dessert. He always jokes he got Nancy's rings and a gumball machine, but the young couple actually paid for the wedding themselves. I believe personally that it's a testament to show that it's not just like a happy love story. It is the commitment and love between two people that fought through a lot of a lot of adversity and they've made it 70 years um, and they're able to celebrate with each other and they're still madly in love with each other. Their secret to a long and happy marriage, mutual respect and the importance of working through any disagreements. Nancy suggests to forgive and forget and Melvin says once it's resolved, don't bring it back up. Grandma always says to put God first and to let just things roll off if if you're gonna argue you just gotta like let it go and grandpa always says to just make sure that um you're always letting go of things that aren't aren't big problems i have seen and done a lot of wedding portraits as a professional wedding photographer and i can always tell the people that are really committed and loving to work towards each other by the way that they um, show love to each other and the biggest indicator is if they're selfless and able to take care of the other person before themselves and so I have been lucky enough to see this in my grandparents that they are they have the most selfless love I've ever seen. Anna and her family treasure these photos of the devoted pair as much as the couple treasure each other. I think something as wholesome as a couple that's been together for 70 years is good news that people want to believe in love. Stunning and sweet and a story to remember. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.